Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to ISP episode number eight. Today, we're going to sit down with a perinatologist, Dr. Vern Katz, and Ms. Catherine Murray, a genetic counselor. Lorinda and I thought it would be a great dynamic to hear from these two, being that they have both worked in the area of maternal fetal medicine alongside high-risk obese sonographers for most of their career. Dr. Vern Katz was extensively involved in research as well as serving as the vice chair of education in the department of OBGYN at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And areas of research included the effects of exercise during pregnancy. He is also a senior fellow with the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine. Dr. Katz relocated to Eugene, Oregon in 95 as a partner with the hospital-based Fetal Diagnostic Center, which evolved into the Center for Genetics and Maternal Fetal Medicine. During his tenure, Dr. Katz was both a clinical professor of maternal fetal medicine at Oregon Health Sciences and University and a clinical professor at physiology at the University of Oregon. Dr. Katz has written over 250 peer-reviewed articles, chapters, and textbooks about OBGYN. Specific areas of interest are ultrasound and its applications in prenatal diagnosis and maternal and fetal physiology. Catherine is a diplomat of both the American Board of Genetic Counseling and the American Board of Medical Genetics. With nearly 30 years of professional experience, concurrently having roles ranging from prenatal diagnosis to adult genetics, such as Huntington's disease and inherited cancer syndromes, Catherine has a breadth of knowledge and is sought as a resource within the realm of genetic counseling. She was part of the original research team that helped identify Huntington gene and was one of the first three providers nationally who offered the formal cancer risk assessments for inherited cancer syndromes. Catherine's ongoing interest in the education of genetic counseling students, medical interns, and providers, expanding access for patients, and her awareness and participation in academia as a community clinician brings her a unique perspective to genetic medicine. Please welcome to the show Dr. Vern Katz and Ms. Catherine Murray. You guys, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Catherine, I'd like to start out with you wondering where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your childhood and how you got into genetic counseling. I grew up in Michigan. I went to undergraduate to a liberal arts school in Michigan and was a biology and chemistry major. And this is before the internet access, but I was in the career office and looking in filing cabinets for careers and a folder fell on the floor and it was a picture of Manhattan. So I picked it up and it was genetic counseling. And um, it was the Sarah Lawrence program in New York. And I loved my ninth grade genetics teacher. It was absolutely wonderful and was fascinated by it. And um, I'll tell a quick story that when I was in fifth grade, our assignment was to write about some disease. And I wrote about um, hemophilia. And I wrote about, and I had no idea what somatic genes were or germline genes were, inherited versus not inherited. And I wrote a paper that if we kept fixing people with genetic diseases, that they would still pass them on to their kids. And what would we do to the population as a whole? And that was my fifth grade paper. If it hadn't been a picture of Manhattan, I don't know if I would have picked it up. But for it to be a master's program in New York and and genetics was like, wow, this is pretty magical. Yeah. And I only applied there and got in there, and here I am today. That's amazing. And to be able to trace it back to the paper you wrote in fifth grade is well, that's pretty awesome. One more thing about that paper. I actually got a B on it because I didn't follow the instructions. <laughs> well, I, I made my topic too deep. I think the teacher didn't like being so deep. Something about you knowing you, does, that does not surprise me. You got docked for being an overachiever. You're like, no, we're going to put you, you need some humble pie here. That's funny. So um, I, I, I have to credit um, Mrs. Carsberg, my fifth grade teacher, who animated on her big desk of what giving birth was like in our sex ed classes and and she was, it, imagine Lucille Ball teaching a class on what giving birth means. It was oh just like that. <laughs> That's an awesome visual. <laughs> and then she said, giving birth wasn't enough. Then they come in and push on your stomach to get that placenta out. 
And all the kids are like, ooh, and you're like, oh, <laughs> this sounds awesome. Oh, no, they all enjoyed her. She was very good. So did your Sarah Lawrence program then, how did you go down the pathway of really going into high-risk pregnancy? I know you do other areas of genetics too, but... Oh, it's the only part of it that existed when I started. Okay. There wasn't other genetics. Yeah. And um, I got lucky enough to be able to work with Vern and some other perinatologists and got to really excel. I also do cancer genetics, and I was also part of helping to find the Huntington's gene, so a lot of different opportunities in my career. So, Vern, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to becoming a perinatologist? I did my medical school training at UCLA, and then I did my residency at the University of Arizona uh, at Tucson, mm-hmm. and that was in OBGYN, and that's when I was first uh, introduced to ultrasound. Um, they had a very robust ultrasound program there, and we'll come back to that in a second because that was part of the issue of who controlled ultrasound. And this was 1981. 1979 to 1983, so there was really a question at that time who was controlling it. At that time, our obstetrics department was in charge of obstetric ultrasound. Mm. And then I did a year in Appalachia and then did my fellowship at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which also had a very strong ultrasound department. And I stayed on as faculty there through uh, the middle of 1995, and then I moved to Eugene where I practiced maternal fetal medicine uh, completely um, until I retired. And my retirement, like many physicians, was a transitional retirement, meaning you kind of fade off into the distance, (laughs) as opposed to just abruptly end. So in all of the uh, obstetric programs I was involved with, Mm -hmm. there was always ultrasound. And we did it for both obstetrics and gynecology Mm -hmm. all the way through. Sure. Was there something that you left when you left the OBGYN practice and went to maternal fetal medicine that you missed about the GYN side? Or were you oh, I tremendously happy? missed um, the ultrasound for, uh, for GYN. But yes, I missed the GYN practice. So Vern, can you tell us what the impact has been on the progression of ultrasound technology to the delivery and management of obstetrical patients? So that's a question of... of uh, of immense, immense uh, uh, scope in terms of addressing. And so I'm only going to address a couple different parts of that. Okay. And as our listeners think, well, what about this? What about that? Um, I'd like to reach out to them and say, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, I just <laughs> forgot to talk about it. So when I first started in ultrasound, we were at the point of identifying a, a round circle for the fetal head. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did my first amniocentesis as a as an intern with a B mode, uh, and uh, at that time when I was training, we we still did uh, fetal transfusions by X-ray. We didn't have ultrasound to do those. You'd take an x-ray, you'd look at where the baby was, and then you'd say, oh, there's the abdomen. We're going to put the needle and introduce that into the baby's abdomen. By the time I finished, we were doing everything under ultrasound guidance completely um, that involved any type of fetal surgery or fetal manipulation Mm -hmm. other than opening up the uterus. Mm -hmm. And so during that time, we've had tremendous changes in the technology. Mm -hmm. Now, the question I think that is critical is how did that affect patients? Mm-hmm. So I used to have a slide from, I believe, 1968 or 1969 of Life magazine. And for those of you who don't know, Life magazine was a large periodical that was mostly just pictures, and it would try to use through pictures what was happening in the world. Uh, and this is at the time where most television stations only had four. So this was at a time when there were usually only four television stations in any broadcast area. So everything was was taken from magazines and periodicals and newspapers. Mm -hmm. And the cover for Life magazine, and it was a color cover at this point, showed a picture of a woman looking anxiously at a B-mode ultrasound. And it said, audacious experiments with ultrasound will yield new visualizations and new new miracles will happen uh, uh, in terms of medicine. And from that time till the time that I retired, mm-hmm. we, we went through three-dimensional ultrasound. I did some of the research on 3D ultrasound, which originally was being sponsored by the Navy 
because they thought they could then picture the submarine that was going to be going underneath the ocean. So there was research with that. The way that women looked at ultrasound was just amazing. Mm -hmm. And hearing the Doppler which is a form of ultrasound, obviously, mm-hmm. it was much, much more powerful than any other single step. So if we look at how patients related to ultrasound, I think that, that for them to hear the heartbeat mm-hmm. was absolutely incredible. And that really changed, uh, I think, ultrasound and patients' perception of, of the pregnancy much more. Seeing the face uh, was very tough because of the limitations of the technology at the time. And sure. this is during the uh, late 80s -hmm. where we would try and give a profile to each patient or a picture of five fingers and that's about all that we could do and because it was so primitive compared to what people would expect it it wasn't as much of a life-changing experience Mm -hmm. and then beginning in the late 80s and early 90s uh, when we started to move into much better technology for the ultrasound and then in the mid 90s when three-dimensional ultrasound became beginning begin to be available, that's when I think patients' perceptions started to change remarkably. The, the other changes that happen reflect uh, not as much sonography, but the way that patients looked at medicine in general. Mm-hmm. So medicine through the 70s and 80s really started to change technologically, and patients started to expect much more of what was going to happen from the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And ultrasound changed at the exact same time. So I'm not sure whether it was ultrasound or the changes in general medicine that caused patients to want so much perfection from their baby. I remember being involved in lawsuits and being aware of lawsuits in the 80s and 90s because physicians could not predict what was going to happen with the baby. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a failure to predict. Most of those lawsuits never uh, uh, were, not, were not settled in, in favor of, uh, settled against the physicians. Um, because there are so many difficulties in that type of prediction. But that expectation that a patient should have a perfect baby or it should have been predicted completely by the medical staff, that that really came out of the ultrasound era. So in answer to your question, how have I seen things change in terms of patients' perception, I'd say that that the Doppler, uh, the heart tones, and 3D were the two big steps that, that changed patient perception. Yeah. And I'm sure real time, being able to see baby move. Seeing baby move. Thank you for, mm-hmm. for pointing that no out. Problem. And for, for all of our listeners <laughs> who are driving, go, well, what about real time? What about real time? You didn't ask him. <laughs> and that's true. And one of the originally, um, well, back in the 80s, yeah. you know, we would have to limit who could come and visit the ultrasound because ultrasound changed from being a medical visit to a social event. Mm-hmm. And that really changed a lot of the practice because especially with the busy perinatal practice, because the practices that I was involved in both at the university and at the medical center uh, where I worked in Eugene Mm -hmm. had catchment areas of um, a million to a million and a half people and about 150 miles in circumference. So patients would travel great distances, and it was all referral-based to find out, is this going to be good or bad? Mm -hmm. And when for us to be able to see all the patients that needed to be seen, we weren't set up to be a, a, to have it a social event. And when patients would come in with an extended family, that became very problematic. And we actually had to compartmentalize our visits so that some of the visit would be social and some not. Sure. Because once the patients brought their families, then the families started uh, taking in charge of what was going to happen medically. Mm-hmm. And that became... That's where ultrasound actually hurt us, or not hurt us, but hindered our ability to, to provide good medicine sure. because it interfered with the, with the relationship we had with the patient and her immediate family. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wanted to talk to the patient and her partner, whether it was a woman, a man, her mother, whoever was her main caregiver with her. And when you had a grandmother who had first seen the baby and was going to tell us that no matter what, everything's going to be okay, yeah. um, that took another 15 minutes uh, that we had to t- talk to the grandmother before we could start to address the patient. Not that 15 minutes is bad, uh, but over the first four hours of talking to grandmothers when we want to talk to the mom, yeah. that was problematic. And so that that's part of where ultrasound was one of those gifts that um, kind of like a hamster mm-hmm. uh, where you, it's a lot more work than you think than it's going to be. Gonna be. Yeah. And, and it means that there's going to be six goldfish that come back to the person who gave you the hamster. And many more questions to answer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in terms of doing perinatal medicine with it, when you would have an abnormal, 
back in the day when you had what you thought was an abnormal baby on like the B mode versus when you could actually show the patients the defect, did you notice a change in their ability to believe the ultrasound or believe you as a physician? That was going so on? I, I think that for us, patients pretty much believed what we said. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always been that faith. And I think that the value of ultrasound and how it has changed over the last 25 years is that it lets us explain better to the patient. Not that they didn't believe us, but that we can actually show them with much more specificity. The difference being cardiac lesions. Um, Because right now, there's only four sonographers in the United States that actually understand cardiac lesions, and everybody else just pretends to. That's not true. There's really about eight, and everyone who's listening to this podcast. (laughs) But other than than you on the the other end of this podcast, no one else really understands cardiac lesions, and the patients don't. So we say, oh, do you see this little dark spot there? And they're like, sure. Yes. Oh, exactly, yes. We see that, uh yeah. Um, And it turns out they're looking at their phone anyway. Uh, So... Um, seriously, because they're though, recording it. They're recording. Yeah. That's right. Because um, they're recording you to put on YouTube as well. So, in terms of in terms of where it's helped us, it's not necessarily believing it, but it is in showing the scope, Good. and that's that's one of the advantages of perinatal ultrasound. Because if we say your baby's abnormal, that's all or nothing. Sure. Whereas if we say, well, if you see this little cyst on the kidney, this little. Um, little bit of fluid on the kidney. Yeah. That is much more something that a person can put a box around. A person can put a boundary around it. And sure. for patients to be able to deal with an illness, whether it's a, a full illness or whether it's an illness in their baby, um, I mean, one of their illnesses, not a full illness, yeah. uh, if they can give it a definition, put a boundary around it, and it's much more easy for them to think about and to use their intellectual ability as opposed to their emotional ability. Yeah. So I think that's what's helped us. And how do you feel like that has evolved, how, how the tech, while well, the technology has evolved from when you very first started, um, as far as patients being able to recognize the photos more themselves or have more of a connection to the photo, the clearer the images get, do you feel like that's changed their perception? I don't think it's the images. I think it's the popular social media. Um, I, I do think there a, was a really big shift in my mind from the um, mid-'80s into the 90s. And I know ultrasound has improved since then, but they they don't seem terribly striking to me. And I can I can still tell what is wrong, and I can and I think the images are clearer. But I don't know that they are any clearer. In the mid '80s, it was like trying to see something through a blizzard. Um, yeah, <laughs> very accurate yeah. description there. But, but it's, snow pictures, snow pictures. Joan likes to call those. Yeah, but it's still like looking at somebody through a shower curtain. Okay, it's, yeah, it's not like Especially a photograph for, of a person there. for patients. Yeah, for sure. So, so I think their expectations of what ultrasound can and cannot do, and um, the reason they like three D so much is because in the third trimester it can look like a baby, but those two D images are still see what we can see. Sure. And so I think their expectations have changed. Got it. And while we're kind of on that, on this little kick, we both practice, you know, with patients that have cell phones. And I don't know if you have this problem in your office as well, but the distraction of the mobile device and the appointment with you, does that ever become, or do you ask them to put it away? I know we have a trouble in the ultrasound room because we ask them to shut it off or we have signs that say, please turn them off. Not only because we want people to pay attention to what's going on and be involved um, and not be distracted or on their devices, but so that we know it's not being recorded. Is that an it issue is for you? never a problem for me. Okay. I have their full attention. And um, there are times when I give permission for it to be recorded because a spouse cannot be there. Okay. Um, and um, sometimes I will have young people who keep looking at their phone, and I will... I usually start out by being quiet, and they look at me, and I said, I'll wait till you're finished. I said, if you want to talk more, you need to put that away. And um, I usually only have to say that to the youngest of patients, and a lot of times their parents are in the room, and they're, like, clapping behind them, and um, I, I won't keep talking. So you feel like it is worse with the, gym, with the, early, with the millennials than the, than the older populations? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, but I'd say 98% of the time it is not an issue. That's good. Yeah, I've, um, and I do occasionally give permission, and then I do occasionally with surrogate families use uh, 
Facebook. video conferencing because the family might be in Israel and we're trying to explain what's wrong with their baby. Sure. So Catherine, I know earlier you mentioned the importance of the introduction part of the appointment between the provider and the patient at the very start of the exam. Do you think that this part of the appointment is just as important for the sonographer to master as it is for the genetic counselor? If I personally think that if sonographers can take that extra moment with the lights on to say your name and what you're doing and then looking in the chart and putting stuff in there because I've been in the room and I do think it it feels kind of odd to me. Sure. Distant. Distant. Yeah. Yeah, right. I think the preparation of what you do before you go into the room is tremendous impact on that relationship you develop with the patient. Sure. I, I try and remember what Keith always says about amnios is it's all in the setup. Like, so taking the setup, and Vern used to say that about CBSs, like, that's why they take so much time to set it up so that it's everything's in place because it makes a big difference. Everything the is the setup. It's called contracting. Okay. And it means that each expectation is met in the room. And I don't think you can do that without looking somebody in the eye. And our busy schedules and stuff, I, I see patients who feel like they're rushed. Yeah. And and Especially if we're running in the room late mm-hmm. and getting started and they've mm-hmm. been anxious and anxiously waiting. And, that and sometimes, even though it doesn't seem like a huge impact on the time, you can actually ultimately save time in the end if you just take that minute or two to look the patient in the eye with the light on, make them comfortable, and then start your exam. You have a different relationship immediately. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It only takes me about a minute or two to do that. Yeah. But um, but that's what I do is I'm the all about the talking part of it. And I do have to figure out what tests and what their disease is and all that stuff. But um, it's all about the setup and the perspective. And I think that's missing in a lot of medicine. We're always dealing with complex things. We're not dealing with single issues when they walk in the door. Yeah. But even on the less complex, uh, sometimes that can uh, certainly set the stage for how the whole visit is going to be with the patient. Mm -hmm. Vern, can you tell us a little bit more about what type of person goes into maternal fetal medicine versus general obstetrics? It it does select a certain person, but not necessarily because of bad news. Mm -hmm. I think it has to do with uh, a more academic approach mm. because uh, you have to make you have to do a final word on what you're seeing as, in terms of a referral and you have to be sure. willing to take that responsibility but also uh, most people that have done maternal fetal medicine have to do a thesis they have to do research and part of my practice was always doing research mm. uh, uh, I, and some of that involved ultrasound uh, over the years mm-hmm. and publishing on what ultrasound did. So we did experiments where we did the first ultrasound of women while they were exercising in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we did um, our, our work, people would have, uh, uh, physicians would have a, a woman run on a treadmill and then have them stop and listen to the baby's heartbeat <laughs> and count the number of beats per minute. What we did was actually hook up ultrasounds and have women exercise in various states of exercise, whether it was on a treadmill, whether it was doing dance aerobics, whether it was um, uh, being on a bike, whether it was swimming, and we would actually look at the baby while the woman was exercising uh, to look at the state of the baby. Because one one of the issues of ultrasound is that you can look at state as well as just looking whether the baby's alive or not. Sure. Uh, If you, one of the comparisons we use, and I'm going to diverge from your question a little bit. Sure. One of, the, one of the issues we look at is when you go to see a doctor, if all they were to do was to come in, take your pulse, and then leave, that's not a very good assessment of your health, sure. and you would feel disappointed. Well, the same thing, it used to be the same thing for when we listened to the baby. We used to listen to the baby with a fancy stethoscope, uh, and then we listened with the tone, and then we had a, a tone that was audible so patients could hear. It wasn't mm-hmm. just on mm-hmm. earphones. And that's all we did. That's how we said whether the baby was okay or not. We measured the mom's abdomen, and uh, which is has a little bit of inaccuracy, as some yeah. of you uh, can understand. Yeah. And the, one of the things about ultrasound that we did, which is I like, which is why I like having an ultrasound in every office, is you can look at the fetal the fetal state. 
the thing that we call the biophysical profile. Sure. And now we're much more advanced than just the biophysical profile. It used to be, is the baby moving? Is the fluid around the baby good? Does the baby have breathing motion? Sure. And those were all parameters that were more sophisticated than just, is there a heartbeat or not? Yeah. So one of the nice things about ultrasound over the time that I was doing research and studying maternal fetal medicine and physiology was what is the fetal state. And that's one of the advantages that ultrasound gave us. So you had asked earlier about uh, um, looking for fetal abnormalities, but one of the best things we do with ultrasound and one of the most advantageous uh, qualities is to look at fetal well-being. And maternal fetal medicine deals with high-risk pregnancies Mm -hmm. where the mom's physiology and the placental um, factors may cause the baby to be sick. So there might not be a structural problem with the baby, but there could be a health problem with the baby. And that's where ultrasound has been a great, great service to us. Now, most of the people that are listening to this podcast think about us doing fetal measurements. Well, the growth of the baby is an indication of the health of the baby. And that's where ultrasound has helped us tremendously because we're much more sophisticated in how we measure the size of the baby now. Before, when we first started off ultrasound, all we had was a measurement of the diameter of the head um, called the BPD or the length of the leg. And those are pretty gross measurements compared to what we do now. Yeah. But, in, but when we first started off, we thought that was tremendous. Yeah. Um, and as all of us who have kids know, babies don't grow linearly. They grow in, in, in stages and steps yes. and spurts. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the problems with those measurements. They're not as dynamic as we would like. Yeah. Uh, but going back to the main point, Knowing about fetal state is a big advantage for ultrasound. It's not just structural abnormalities. And if you think about the amount of babies that have birth defects, they're actually much less numerically compared to the babies that have problems just from physiologic aspects. So I think that helps. And that's why I think ultrasound should be in every obstetric unit. Sure. Well, and it helps you with end-of-pregnancy decision-making, right? I mean, for delivery purposes. That is a wonderful, wonderful point. So, you know, we know that 1% of pregnancies are going to end in stillbirth. Mm -hmm. And and there's a huge amount of issues involved with if the mom goes overdue or if the mom's really ready for delivery or Mm -hmm. if she got enough prenatal care. So we accurately know how old the baby really is, whether Mm -hmm. the mom comes in for her prenatal care care in the last trimester, we don't know how, how, how old the baby is because sure. size and age um, don't always go together. Um, and that's why when you look at me and see my very big abdomen, you don't think that <laughs> I may not be as old as I'm supposed to be. We don't realize how young you really are. That's right. Um, and that's the advantage of the podcast as opposed to a, a video. But going back back to the issue of end of pregnancy yeah. issues, it's a wonderful help to us in terms of looking at, at the state of the baby. Sure, especially with being able to Doppler the umbilical cord and all that. Right, you bring up Doppling of the umbilical cord. There's all sorts of parameters, and the technological advances have allowed us to do that with much more accuracy. Yeah, for timing and delivery, too. For timing and delivery, exactly. So earlier, Vern, you noted the social factors influencing ultrasound, and certainly you have had a unique relationship with your sonographers, and I think it's built upon the respect that you have for their knowledge base versus um, some practices do not encourage sonographers to interact with their patients or point things out on the screen. And so I would like you to kind of give your perspective on that. So Lorinda has asked a good question, which is, which I'm going to change a little bit if that's okay with your permission, which is how do we look at the position of the sonographer within the medical spectrum? Should the sonographer be like any other healthcare provider where they give information to the patient or do they have to be just like a robot who never interacts with the patient except to greet them and tell them to put their uh, phones away? Uh, Well, in our practice over the years, we've always encouraged the sonographers to interact with the patients. Uh, I think that if you have a person giving really critical information and obtaining critical information from a patient and then not being able to give feedback, that's devastating, particularly when it comes to the baby, uh, when it comes to pregnancy, when it comes to a maternal interaction. I think it provides a source of, it, it initiates a source of friction and um, it creates distrust. Like, I have something that you don't have. I know something that you don't know. And I think it's very detrimental to the whole relationship that that patient has with that practice, whether it's the physicians, whether it's nurse practitioners. 
it, it's really it sets up a power relationship that's destructive. Now, we contrast that with the fact that if the sonographer finds something that's abnormal, uh, it, it, it's problematic because they don't want to make a specific diagnosis until it's been confirmed. And plus, as soon as you say, well, I'm finding this abnormality, that also changes the patient relationship. So my point and the reason that we've evolved our practice the way it is is because just because there's a, a potential problem doesn't mean that you should cut off all, all, all sorts of interaction between the patient uh, and the sonographer. And I think that there is a very happy medium that can be reached, and I think each sonographer finds their relationship with the patient, and they start off by saying what the boundaries are. Um, And they can say things like, I'm seeing something that I feel really good about, or I can see something that worries me and I want to get the doc to look at it. We're going to look at the kidneys. And then I think that one of the things our sonographers have done very well is when they find something that's negative, they contrast that with something that's positive. Um, And I think it'd be nice, and we always we tried to do this and never did, to have a little button that you could push with your foot to call the doctor and, you know, that said a red alert, red alert, you know, come on panic into the button. room real quick, yeah. panic button, come in quickly, you know. And, uh, uh, and, I, and I also think that one of the things we talked about a minute ago is that since ultrasound be- has become a social event where the entire family gets to come, that if the sonographer finds something abnormal, they're not just dealing with one person, the patient, or the patient's spouse or immediate partner or um, support person. They're dealing with the whole family. And that becomes very tough for the sonographer to finish his or her job. Um, If the sonographer has to stop and explain everything, then they don't get to finish their exam. And as we all know, and everybody who's listening to this podcast knows, a complete exam is essential. And if you find one abnormality, then it's even more essential to finish the complete exam, and that can't be done. Um, Most sonographers, in my experience, if they find something abnormal, will come back to it and finish the rest of the exam just so that they get it done. For a while, we were saying, well, say that you're having a hard time seeing it. We had some sonographer, I think, that worked with our office that said that. And then they would call the doc in to help uh, do that part of the exam if it was an abnormality. But I'm not for doing anything that, that doesn't tell the truth to sure. a patient, so, so that doesn't work. But anyway, going back to the main question, I think that there is a happy medium mm-hmm. in terms of sonographers providing information. And nowadays, when we have sonographers that know more than the physician anyway, um, I think that most sonographers are better at interpreting ultrasound than doctors, um, because doctors have very little training in ultrasound in many ways, um, it, it, it becomes a huge issue because the sonographer is actually the one making the diagnosis. They're not necessarily making the, um, or they're never making the plan for how to treat the diagnosis, um, uh, but, um, but often they're making the diagnosis. They give it to the physician, and then the physician gives it back to the patient. And, and I think that that's... I think that there's a, a way to overcome that, that issue. Catherine, for those practicing clinical sonographers and ultrasound students who are listening to the podcast, what would you like them to know about the relationship between the sonographer and the genetic counselor within the MFM practice? Let me back up for a minute. Um, when I see OB sonography in the offices versus what you do in a perinatal center, my point of view is that the roles are very different. The, the images, the goals might be the same, but the ability to interact with patients, what it, you learn about the different syndromes and what other features could be part of those syndromes, and sort of expanding that, um, that ability on your own to actually think about the whole big picture, I think is much more in-depth in perinatal ultrasound versus um, office ultrasound. Mm-hmm. And I might be completely wrong, and you guys can correct me, but um, I do think every sonographer who works with us gains a great deal of information and the depth of information available. And the ways I, I try to work with sonography is I go in and say, we're worried about this syndrome. These are the features that we might be able to see prenatally, um, and or maybe this disease really has no prenatal presentation whatsoever, and we're really just doing an anatomy ultrasound. Um, also, if you 
see renal problems, you want to look closely at the heart because they form at the same time, and the same thing with the single umbilical artery. And that's kind of basic stuff, but I, I feel like sonographers that we work with learn a lot more about the syndromes. In the embryology. In the embryology. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And also, I think the, um, the implications of it, because I think that helps adjust your tone in the room with the patient. Sure. Um, well, I know it's very helpful for, it, for us to hear from you what the plan is, how they feel about you know, wanting the screen on, wanting it off, you know, if they want that disassociation, if they really want as much visualization as possible because they're, they know that they might lose this baby and these are their moments or, with them. So. Or even your willingness for patients who know the baby's going to die want to come in and say goodbye. And you guys help out tremendously with that. Um, and so um, I think ultrasound is an extension of holding someone's hand. And... Um, and providing them with information that cannot come in any other way and will affect them forever. Mm-hmm. And so I've always said uh, the traditional way ultrasound was, I didn't know if I could ever do that because I, taught, I, I am able and trained enough to explain a lot of stuff to the patient. And so being quiet about things. I know the old way was to just be quiet and not say anything until the doctor comes in, and I just don't know how I could do that. Yeah. And what I find is that patients come in and say, oh, my sonographer talked about how much the baby's moving. I think really they're talking about filling up the space because sure. being quiet is too hard. Sure. Um, yeah, it's awkward. And yes. when I was a first student uh, in a radiology practice, you know, I didn't, uh, probably the first week, I didn't say a peep to my patient other than getting them comfortable on the table. But uh, over the course of time, you learn the art of talking to your patient and not saying anything about what's on the screen, but you can still interact with My experience, the sonographers are a really important part of the team. Um, they've been wonderful in teaching me about anatomy and showing me on the images what's wrong because I really need to explain that to the patient. And... Um, also really great at telling me when they really can't see body parts and if we weren't able to evaluate something because I also add that into the story for the patient. It's not just about abnormalities. It's about how well we can see and how well we don't see. And, and you know, I'm always pretty straightforward with the patient. Um, you know, their size can limit how well we can see and sometimes we feel it's not politically correct to talk about that. But um, I will tell patients that there's things that affect how well we can see the baby's position, how well we conduct ultrasound. Um, I use one of your lines, Lauren, and I'll say some heavy people are really fluffy and we can see really good, and some are really dense and it really bounces back the sound wave so we don't see very well. Now, being part of a perineal practice, um, I have sensed that there has been an evolution of your skills in the world of ultrasound from, you know, when you first started in the field when you were down in L.A. to where you are today. Do you want to share a little bit of how you have expanded your knowledge and and capability around the world of ultrasound? Well, I was very fortunate to start in a smallish practice. Lorinda was one of my mentors, and she took time to show me what was going on in ultrasound, and I'm a very visual person and love photography, and so... I I really appreciate being able to see images because I am the one who really explains it to the patient. I am the one who um, explains what we're worried about, what we're not worried about, what it means to the baby, what it doesn't. Of course, um, I work with the physician to help make the diagnosis, but I'm the one who makes it real to the patient. And for my ability to actually see and understand the images is paramount to me being able to explain it to patients. Sure. I know a lot of genetic counselors have hardly even seen an ultrasound, but um, I don't know how I could do my job without it. I feel like I really understand those images and, and can tell pretty well, and most of that has to do with Lorenda teaching me. 
Well, and I'm sure some of our audience members are considering this as there is now the advanced cardiac sonographer where they are meeting an advanced level of educational requirements and additional certification standards. So they're more in that mid-level provider uh, giving a, but again, it's at the moment only in cardiology. Certainly there are hopes that it will expand to the other specialties as well. So, Vern, I would like to ask your opinion on the potential role of a perinatal sonographer that promotes their education to an advanced level and becomes a mid-level provider in a perinatal practice. What do you see as their potential? Well, I, I think that this is a, a, an opinion unrelated to fact. And um, all of you who are listening on the podcast, I want you to take this with um, uh, a, a grain of... Um, a grain of salt, um, or a uh, ounce of uh, ultrasound gel. Uh, I don't know if you need an advanced degree, given how good most of our ultrasound is. And I, I think that for obstetric ultrasound, if you have someone who has a, enough special training in obstetric ultrasound, I'm not talking about a person who does general ultrasound for a small-level hospital and um, one afternoon, uh, one afternoon a week does the four obstetric ultrasounds that get sent to them. I'm talking about a sonographer who does all day long for OB and gynecologic sure. ultrasounds, and that's their main specialty. I don't know if they need to get, quote, advanced training just so that they can give a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and most physicians have moved to the point where they'll let the sonographer say, I, everything I see looks good. I see a healthy 18-week pregnancy, and the doctor will give you more information. Um, Again, I think that there's a happy medium, and I think as, especially as sonography gets more and more common, sonographers will uh, be able to give more information to patients. Sure. I think one thing it's being used at is, at least from the sonography perspective, is looked at as a career ladder. Like, where can we build a ladder from here for people to go to? Meaning, getting getting there, you know, just being a clinical staff practicing sonographer, and then what we call a lead sonographer, or um, what were they calling it in Canada? They were going to call it a quality assurance sonographer, which means they have a little bit extra training or so many years input, they have a little bit higher level, which I think can increase their pay scale as well, but also allows them to do maybe scans when the physician is out of the office, you know, when they're not there and present. And I don't know if that's more of an insurance liability. Um, Depends on the country and the rules that are yeah. regulating right. and, and I, I think those are, I think that type of um, ladder and advancement is very, very, very reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it still doesn't answer the question, though, is should, should a basic obstetric sonographer who has competence in his past competence accreditations sure. in sonography be able to give limited um, evaluations of what they're seeing? Sure. And, and I actually think that they can. And in answer to the original question about our office and our practice, um, we've always said that that's okay. What are your thoughts on patient access to miniaturized ultrasound equipment, meaning handheld devices that they may be able to afford on their own, or phone apps that assist them uh, through pregnancy? So um, before I answer that question, I want to say that I have no um, stocks that are involved in apps, and I don't own any uh, stock in ultrasound, so I have no conflict of interest uh, in answering that question. Uh, There are four medical ethics principles. One is do no harm. One is do good, the principle of beneficence. The third is respect for patient autonomy, that a patient gets to decide about his or her health. And the fourth is social justice. So social justice doesn't come up that much in terms of ethics. I mean, it does with with things like Ebola virus and, um, and access to health care. But in terms of the issue, the, the main issues, um, of ethics, there's a, there's an ethical issue and a practical issues with patients having access to their own ultrasound machines. My personal feeling is that the ethical principle of patient autonomy, it by far and away, is the most important um, kind of guide that we would use for this question. So I think that every patient should be able to have their own uh, ultrasound or ultrasound app. And I would imagine that um, for the, that given the technology the way it is, the probe would be the 
least expensive part and probably the most breakable. Um, <laughs> and uh, as we drop them all the time. And, uh, and that the app would then provide the, the screen for the patient. Sure. And, and my personal philosophical view is that, that this will be a huge amount of problems for everybody. It's going to be problems for the patient, it's going to be problems for the patient's family, and it's going to be a huge amount of patient problems for the sonographer and for the OBGYN office. However, I also think it's a patient's right for her to see her own pregnancy all the time. Mm -hmm. And we will just have to deal with all the issues that come up. And I think that, in that sense, the market the market forces uh, will take care of it because if a patient comes in and says, my app showed me that my baby has three hands, you'll say, well, I can't vouch for what your app says, but I will be glad. To, I can do, do a whole ultrasound, but insurance may not pay for it, and you might have to pay for your own ultrasound. I can't help you with that, and and I'll do the whole ultrasound. Sure. And, um, or the sonographer will say, I'm sure. sorry, I'm not going to... We, we don't interpret apps because we can't say the quality of, of what they were done. So you can put your phone away and um, and we'll go ahead and do another ultrasound. But, you know, I don't have an appointment for a week or we'll do it. But, again, the market forces will, will take care of that over time. I don't think that the apps will... Um, I think the apps will be reassuring 95% of the time sure. and a total disaster 5% of the time. But that's, that's, the, that's what happens with medicine. Yeah. And before we started the podcast, uh, while we were having drinks... Uh, <laughs> that you missed out on Catherine. You guys um, missed drinks. Free um, while we were While we were talking, you know, we talked about how blood pressure and uh, home glucose... For sure, or doptones. Or doptones. Home, do home doptones are done at home now. And there were problems with them all the time. Yeah. Apnea monitors. Or and people thinking they lost the baby because they couldn't find the heartbeat. Exactly. But it was just the wrong spot. Right. And all that has a way of working its way up. But I think that I think it's coming, and I think it's appropriate. And the more we can help with it, the better. How about you, Catherine, as far as genetic counseling and new technology that's available to patients outside of our office, outside of your involvement with an actual genetic counselor? What are you seeing and what are your feelings on access there's a, a whole new market of direct-to-consumer testing for genetic testing. And um, I think that there are, personally, I think there are many more problems with it than there are ways to help people with it. Um, I think that there was just an abstract um, at one of the big maternal fetal, well, one of the big genetics meetings that showed that 40% of the time direct-to-consumer testing was not accurate. And the reasons have to do with variant interpretation. They have to do with um, procedures in the laboratory. Um, I think most direct-to-consumer companies start out as um, entertainment genetics, and then they try to weave health into it. When you say entertainment genetics, do you mean like what they say? Twenty-three. That was what I was just going to head for. Yeah. 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 And part of the one of the main issues I just presented at a conference with that kind of testing is that I think it might be pretty good at telling someone whether they have a specific genetic variant or not, but they don't give perspective. So one of the companies that was approved by the FDA to look at a variant in Bloom syndrome, if you're Jewish and you have the mutation, you're going to have that one 97% of the time. But if you're not Jewish, the chance you're going to have that variant or that mutation in that gene is only 4%. So saying that couple is not at risk is not, I would never use a direct-to-consumer test to say that couple's not at risk. I would use a real genetic test that for everybody had a 97% accuracy. Mm -hmm. And having, the name of our practice was maternal, was genetics and maternal fetal medicine. Mm -hmm. um, one of the issues of ultrasound is it's, we spend a lot more time with ultrasound, or most obstetric practices spend more time with ultrasound saying that everything is normal. Whereas genetic issues um, are often coming with the presumption of a problem. There's a pre-existing condition. Whether the pre-existing condition is common, like someone being what we call advanced maternal age, what I, what I call is prematurity uh, <laughs> at my age. But, um, <laughs> for a woman depends on your perspective. Depends on your perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, but most but most pregnancies are normal, whereas whereas. Genetics is dealing with things. Even though most patients end up being normal, it's starting with a little bit more different. So I actually do have issues with um, with the do no harm part of the ethics for uh, genetic testing. 
I don't think it's the same as screening tests, like looking for colon cancer or checking checking a blood sugar mm-hmm. or checking a blood pressure. That's a screening test in many ways, and that's different than a genetic test. I think that the presumption in this country, in the United States, is that all babies are healthy, and if they're not, the mom must have done something. And so I think that patients get their home ultrasound or they get their home genetic tests, not to see what we should be worried about, but to show that everything's normal or maybe even they're superior to those around them. Just like we want our kids to get all A's in school. Getting a C in school is not acceptable anymore. And so, um, and so I think that perspective of what they're actually looking for is reassurance as opposed to trying to find medical conditions that we can do something about is probably one of the main differences between what they're looking for and what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Fern, this next question is for you. Given your academic background in perinatology, and you're certainly very familiar with the uh, quality of sonography it's been developing, do you have any perspective on what will be coming in the future for both on the physician side as well as the sonographer side for patient care? Well, as obstetrics changes and we get more um, nurse practitioners doing obstetrics and more midwives doing deliveries in obstetrics, uh, I think that the sonographer's role will increase. Uh, And uh, nurse practitioners and midwives do a lot of their own ultrasound, Mm -hmm. and their training is, is very little compared to what a sonographer gets, and yet they can make diagnosis. So... I do think that there will be a, a, a shift as we get more, as we have fewer obstetricians actually doing deliveries, and more midwives doing deliveries. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that the 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 practice is not the practice. The specialty is in flux, OBGYN in in many Western countries, and particularly in the United States, and. I think there will be more perinatal sonographers and more general OBGYN sonographers. Mm So, Catherine, as a sonographer in the MFM practice, I feel like there's been a huge increase in the number of surrogate pregnancies that we see. Also, we used to see the biological parents at the appointment much more often or in person, but now many of them are actually overseas. Is this the case or is this just my perception of things? Well, Oregon is unique because mm-hmm. we have the most favorable laws for surrogacy mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so we are a hub. And so um, it's, it's not surprising to me in any way that there are um, a lot of overseas families. Do you see problems, especially when there's abnormalities or things are wrong that you come into because there's such a distance and language barriers of the patients? Language, not so much. Distance, not so much. Culture, tremendous difference. Sure. Um, Can you give an example? Yeah, I had a family with a uh, a chromosome abnormality that did not involve mental retardation. It did not involve birth defects. It did involve some minor features and maybe infertility. And um, the American family, the gestational carrier family, thought it was no big deal. Even bringing up the option of termination was like so foreign to them. But I knew that the foreign family um, coming from China, where there's many years of one-child rule, um, any imperfections is not tolerated very well. Can be, I'm not saying that, but as sort of as a general rule. Mm-hmm. And um, the American family was shocked to hear the family might want them to consider options. And then they were also shocked to hear that the foreign family, they may continue and everything, but they may refuse to raise this child. There's, they don't have, nobody's going to take the child to them. Yeah. There's no recourse. They don't yeah. ever have to come to pick up the child. Yeah. So, um, so the American family was blown away that those were real possibilities. So cultural differences that that can't be bridged when they're in two different places. Well, it can yeah. be bridged, but you have to know about it's them. Sure, sure. And it's a risk. Do you feel like there's a higher liability of legal um, like uh, lawsuits and stuff when 
I, feel, I guess I feel like that sometimes in the room is like we don't have that patient, even patient provider relationship with actual parents if something was to, the outcome was to be different than they expected. Where with our patients, you know, they're there telling them, oh, we can't tell you that everything looks right, but what we see looks right. Do you think that there's any increased liability with never really being able to meet in person the parents? I don't see how. They have different laws, different rules. They don't, they're not part of our tort system. I mean, they're not part of all that. Um, yeah, I'm not, I wasn't sure. I just always had, had thought about that. But, you know, when, when the surrogate was sitting, when the bio mom was sitting in the room before, it felt like she kind of understood the limitations of what we were doing, too. But the people who we never see that are far removed, I don't know if they, they get to understand that or if they have to. If there's I almost always have talked to them on Skype or almost always we've texted a few questions back and forth about what tests we're going to do. Okay. Catherine, another question. As far as advancements in the field of genetic testing go, what aspects have made your role easier and which ones have complicated what you do? The ability, I think, to get results to patients. Um, A lot of the labs, I can release the results. I can release results to patients and they can have copies of their own. I think there's a couple labs in particular who do an excellent job in writing their reports. Um... I think that I think one thing that's made things difficult is people who don't have voicemail because I'm not going to text them results. And, um, and you so keep far, trying to get a hold of them. Yes. Just... Yes. So fortunately, they see that there's an unknown call, and hopefully they call back. Otherwise, I have to send them letters. Um, I think that our ability to actually treat some genetic diseases now that we were unable to treat in any way in the past is a great advance. Um, I think like which, for example, like um, there, at the conference I was at, there was a rare metabolic disease. The physicians were pretty sure in which pathway the disease was but they couldn't figure out what was wrong. So they did gene sequencing of the entire genome, found the abnormality, found out which gene was abnormal, which enzyme was abnormal, and was able to do the replacement by medication downstream from that mutation and, and make life a lot better for that child. Um, so I think our abilities to think about treatment have changed a lot, um, but I still think the counseling aspect is really important in helping people live with that information. Sure. Since you've been at a conference recently, what do you project or anticipate will be the most momentous future finding within your field? The ability to understand on the gene level what a disease is and to design a personalized treatment for that. You want to elaborate on that for our listeners in case we have uh, some people that are not so familiar with the genetic backgrounds? Well, that case I just gave an example of okay. is that we actually found the defect, found what gene was broken, know the pathway, and we were able to supplement the pathway downstream from the defect to essentially correct it. So you would anticipate then that that particular example will be expanded to many other diseases? Yes. I do have another question for Dr. Katz uh, related to your academic expertise, both in perinatology and uh, sonography, but also um, what is your experience as an author, perhaps in the medical side, but perhaps you have another avenue for authorship as well? (laughs) Well, uh, Lorinda is uh, referring to my smash poetry book. Uh, in Eugene. In Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things that um, uh, happened over my career was that ultrasound was developing technologically. And because of that, and because I was in maternal fetal medicine, we could publish a great deal on what, a, what an ultrasound showed for a particular condition. We talked earlier on this podcast about, maternal, about fetal health and the various ways that, that um, the advances in technology of ultrasound have helped us evaluate fetal health. Well, that led to a great deal of publishing. Uh, we talked about um, looking for different diseases, and particularly 3D ultrasound and cardiac ultrasound, and those also have provided a lot of um, 
information that, that uh, medical practices can use to uh, better diagnose and better treat patients. So um, in terms of uh, my work as an author, and then we talked about maternal fetal medicine is primarily an academic specialty, um, ultrasound was a great help to me uh, in terms of uh, my publications. Um, the the uh, use of ultrasound and exercise in pregnancy uh, was also um, uh, very helpful. Hmm. And and your time as an author now in the poetry stuff, what <laughs> kind of things inspire you to write your poetry? Uh, well, I'd have to say that my poetry is my poetry is already published. I'm working on my novel. Right <laughs> okay, <laughs> so what is the subject of your novel now, too? <laughs> Well, um, I will go over that in great depth at my next podcast. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, my wife is a was a GYN oncologist. Mm-hmm. She's also retired now, and um, our poetry was uh, reflections on seeing patients that had tremendous problems, and reflecting on uh, both in her practice and in our practice on our obstetrics practice uh, on how that related to the world. Uh, there was a time back several years ago when all the planets were in alignment. It was called the planetary alignment. And according to the Mayan calendar, the world was going to end. Well, I was on call that night, and we had a mother who came in with a stillbirth. Mm-hmm. And the nurses were all talking about how the world was going to end uh, for their night shift. <laughs> and it did end for this woman who lost her baby at that yeah. time. Yeah. So things like that are, are what I wrote about. So this question is for both of you. Um, While we're talking about experiences that you've had in your practice, looking back at these experiences and throughout certain seasons of your life, how have they impacted you and what have you learned over the years? Um, Well, I don't don't know what the best way is to to answer that question. That may be something where uh, I have to answer it in five or ten years when I look back in reflection. Um, I think that the main thing that, that I would say is my respect for patient autonomy uh, changed greatly. When I started off as a med student in the mid-1970s, um, I really felt that, that do no harm was the main uh, issue that we had in medicine, in other not to make an act that could hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. Whereas as time went on, it became much more important to respect patient autonomy and and help patients deal with the issue. Uh, And that's something that I think changed from seeing lots of tragedy and lots of of sad findings. Also, I think I gained much more of a respect for the patient's family, Mm -hmm. that you can never treat a patient alone. You have to treat the patient and her support system in order for her to help her deal with the issue, even though I totally, totally feel it's the mom's choice on what happens with her pregnancy. Mm -hmm. I'm completely uh, in favor of that. I don't think that in terms of treatment, you can treat a patient without getting all the family involved in all of her support systems. So I think that that would be another area that is... uh, Has evolved. Has evolved, yes. And for me, um, I agree with Vern totally, obviously, as a genetics person, because if one person in the family has a genetic disease, other family members are at risk. But I, I don't think our traditional medicine really thinks of it that way, and it makes things difficult. As simple as our electronic medical records make it difficult to include specific family history information. Um, when you give one person results, it may affect another person, and I think our, the individual's ability to cope is somewhat dependent on the family's ability to cope. Mm-hmm. But certainly I will see couples who are plan to be lifelong partners and a baby has a problem, and one parent wants to end the pregnancy and the other wants to continue. Obviously, there's only one way they can go, and a woman has the final say. But if I want this couple to stay together and I want them to stay a family, then one of them has to yield to the other one mm-hmm. and um, think about it in family terms. And the woman has the responsibility for the final decision, and the non-pregnant partner has sort of the helplessness that they can't fix it, and they they don't have to say out loud exactly what we should do. Sure. And sometimes that's a blessing, and sometimes it's not. But if you want that couple to and that family to survive it, it has to be a family input. 
it's a nice holistic way of dealing with it too and not just looking at the patient and being like you don't matter to the partner but um but including I mean if, if the it. woman definitely wants to make one choice and the other one doesn't then maybe it's the relationship that ends mm -hmm. it's her decision and I have seen that happen also but most of the time I've been able to find a place where the family can come to a decision that fits for them. Uh, one of the things I would add to what Catherine said is that one of the things that we try and teach our students, because we do a lot of teaching in prenatal medicine too, which goes back to Lorinda, what you said about is there an issue of why we go into perinatology. It's because we do a lot of teaching. One of the main principles that we use for teaching is that you, when you have a patient, you treat the patient, you don't treat the diagnosis. And that means that you take care of her family, you take care of her relationships, um, uh, you don't treat spina bifida, you don't treat um, amniotic band syndrome. Uh, and um, Lorinda and uh, Jamie will give everyone who's listening to this podcast good references on what those are. <laughs> um, but you treat, the, you treat the patient, not the diagnosis. Big conference at Scripps and was a speaker. And my last parting message was is that healing is not always fixing. And there were actual some out lot of out loud responses about oh, you know, just this amazement that that they hadn't really thought of it that way because their whole goal was to fix everything. Yeah, and you can fix everything. Yeah, yeah. even if you can make somebody physically better, you may not be fixing. Exactly. For sure. That's going to do it for episode eight uh, of the International Sonography Podcast. Thank you so much, Vern and Catherine, for joining us for the conversation today. We really appreciate all of your dedication to your patients over the years and just your uh, contribution to the world. Please join us next episode, episode nine, for Joy Guthrie. Dr. Joy Guthrie has had so many titles within the ultrasound world that I don't even know where to start, but she's um, been a sonographer, a program director, a mentor, and she's just overall an amazing person who you have to hear um, the conversation that we have with her about her career and uh, her personal history as well. So don't miss that. And until then, take care.